Jonah and chapter number one this morning. A few weeks ago, we started a series of messages uh, from this Old Testament book. And uh, let me just uh, say this at the beginning. Uh, I recognize it's Mother's Day. This, I'm not going to claim that this is a, a Mother's Day specific message because it, it's not. But uh, hopefully there are some lessons that can be learned by mothers and by all as we go through this uh, this morning. But uh, we started this mess or this series of messages a few weeks ago. We're, we're two messages in uh, from, this, from this Old Testament book, a small book. Uh, in fact, it's only four chapters, uh, 48 verses but uh, a book that carries with it a, a very powerful message. Uh, we, said, we said last time, if all you know about the story of Jonah is that he was a prophet that didn't want to preach, God got his attention, put him in the belly of a whale, and he went and preached and people got saved. If that's all you know about the story, then, then you're really missing the big picture, the point of this story. Because the point of the story of Jonah is really not Jonah at all. The point of the, of the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is, is that we serve a sovereign God who is full of grace and mercy, but also a God that we shouldn't trifle with. This morning, we're going to continue to work our way through this series. We're going to look this morning at verses 4 through 16, but it gets started here with, with maybe a, a little bit of an illustration or a story. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity uh, to be a part of, of a play, uh, be in a play, whether uh, mainly as an actor, I'm thinking, I, I know some maybe have done lights or sound, but I'm thinking specifically as an actor. Um, I have been in a couple of plays in, in my lifetime and, and several skits as well that I've been in, which I guess is kind of like a play. I would not consider myself to be a good actor, uh, but uh, I have been in a few plays. And, and although I'm really not a great actor, I've only been in a couple of plays, there are some lessons that I have learned from the plays that I have been in. And uh, one of the main lessons that I have learned from being in plays is this, that good actors are actually good reactors. Right? Good actors are actually good reactors. Good acting is not so much about the acting as it is about the reacting to the other, to the other characters in the play. For, for example, oftentimes with inexperienced actors, you know, especially the first time being a part of a play, like a, a school play. And, and your main focus as you're a part of that first play is you think, all right, I've got to perfectly memorize my lines. I've got to perfectly know every single step on the stage that I'm supposed to take. And you get all of that down. In fact, you even know the lines that come before yours. And then you get up on stage and you begin to do your acting. And you know, as the audience that's watching this, can't you kind of tell that it's memorized and rehearsed. You see, those that, those that have their lines so perfectly memorized and, and every step that they're supposed to take perfectly in place, you can kind of tell that, you know what, this just isn't, you can tell it's staged. But good actors, really good actors, are able to make it look like real life. Because you see, real life isn't staged. 
Real life is all about responding and reacting. In real life, we never know what the other person's going to say or do. We don't know the line that comes before the line that we're going to say or the line that's going to come after. In real life, we can't really fake things because our actions are always, our reactions are always based upon the unexpected. We could maybe put it this way. Our reactions reveal who we truly are. Our reactions reveal who we truly are. Well, Jonah chapter 1 is a chapter that is all about reactions and responses. In fact, as we look at Jonah chapter 1 and we look at these reactions and these responses, we actually can learn a great deal about the characters in this story by examining how they respond. Why? Well, because our reactions reveal us. For example... We're going to see in this chapter, we're going to learn about God's sovereignty and his love for Jonah as he chases him down to restore him. And we're going to learn about Jonah's stubbornness as he he runs from God and his lack of faith in God. We're also, interestingly enough, we're also going to learn about the reactions of maybe some unexpected characters in this story. We're going to see the reaction of some sailors, some pagan sailors. And we're going to see their sincerity and their lack of faith, as well as their presence of faith. So here's what I'd like to do this morning as as we work through this. I'd like for us to kind of go through this story together, and we're just going to kind of work through verse by verse. You say, well, I already know this story, and you may. You may already know this story, but there are no doubt some some details here that that maybe we'll cover that might surprise you, maybe even some some aspects of the story that we have forgotten about. But but we're going to try to understand this story and understand these verses and its details as we go through it together. And then at the end of the message, kind of like I did with the first two messages, I'll give some applicational points for us to pull away and to take home. So I want to start this morning by looking at verse number three. We actually finished looking at, uh, with, by looking at verse number three last time, but it's where I want to start this morning in Jonah chapter one, and then we'll jump into verse number four. So look at Jonah one, beginning in verse three, the Bible says this, the Bible says, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I bring up verse 3 at the beginning of this message, even though we already have covered it, because in verse 3, we see Jonah's reaction to God's call. And I mentioned this last time as we were finishing up, but but in one sense, as we look at verse 3, in one sense, Jonah's story is over here at this point. You say, what do you mean by that? This whole book is, is, is about Jonah. Yeah, it is. But you see, the story of Jonah's choices and the story of Jonah's disobedience, that's basically over because God has given a command. Jonah has disobeyed. But now what's going to happen is Jonah is going to have to sit back and suffer the consequences as God intervenes in this story. God is going to supernaturally intervene and he's going to steer and direct this prophet to accomplish what he wants him to accomplish. 
And we see this change that's going to take place in this story as we look at the contrast between the first two words of verse 3 and the first three words of verse 4. Look at verse 4. Verse 3 started, but Jonah. Verse 4 starts and says, but the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Do you see the contrast there? We see, but Jonah, and that's a short amount, but now we have the Lord. God is in control of this story. This storm that comes upon the sea, it is no coincidence. God is responsible for this storm. You see, God here has chosen Jonah for a very special and a very specific task, and God is determined that this task is going to be accomplished. See, God took this choice of Jonah to go and to share this message so seriously that God is willing to actually to sink this ship on which this disobedient prophet is sailing, if necessary, rather than to allow Jonah to get to the place that he wants to go. God's responding here. But I also want us to recognize this about this phrase. God is working to get this prophet's attention, and that is a fearful thing. But the phrase, but the Lord, is not just a fearful thing. It's also an expression of God's grace. It's an expression of God's sovereignty as he controls this story, but it's an expression of God's grace as he reaches down to get Jonah's attention, to get him where he should be. So God tells Jonah to go, and Jonah reacts by running away. And God responds to this prophet. By the way, this prophet that should have known better, by literally hurling, that's what the Hebrew word translated as sent out, it literally means to hurl a great wind upon the sea that not only put Jonah's life in peril, but it also put the lives of others in peril as well. This prophet that should have known better. I mean, think about this. Jonah should have known. Jonah knew God. We talked about this last week. And, and Jonah is going to testify in this, own, in, in this chapter that he knows God. Jonah had represented God faithfully for many years. We talked about that last week or last time. He had been a faithful prophet, but now Jonah, who, who knew everything that was right, and, and, and the one that claimed that he knew God, is running as far away from God as he can get. We talked about this last time as well. He, he's going to Tarshish, and, and Tarshish is the furthest spot on the globe away from where he's supposed to be going. He wanted to get in a boat and basically go to the end of the world to escape God. And so what does he do? And so what happens? Well, God responds. God responds. So we have Jonah that gets this message from God and Jonah says, hey, hey, God, I, I don't want to go. God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I, I'm going to turn my back on you. You know, God, I don't really want to see your face. By the way, that's what the, the phrase fleeing the presence of God means. Jonah's basically saying, God, I don't want to see your face. And so Jonah turns his back on God and he begins to walk the opposite direction. 
And instead of going 550 miles in obedience to God, he goes tw- or he attempts to go 2,500 miles in order to disobey God. It's interesting, but Jonah actually worked a whole lot harder to disobey than he would have had to work to obey. I think maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, is there a burden to serving God? Absolutely, there there is. Is is there hard work in in serving Christ? There is hard work in serving Christ, but it's nothing compared to how hard it is to walk away from God. And so that's what Jonah's doing. Jonah, we could say, is maybe learning in the school of, of hard knocks. It would have been a whole lot easier just to do what God had told him to do. But have you ever, have you ever wondered, I, I, I thought about this as I, was, as I was preparing and studying this, have you ever wondered what Jonah thought about as he walked from his home down to Joppa? You know, in our mind, maybe we think that, oh, you know, he he just walked out the door and it was, you know, maybe just a a short little walk down to where he got. It it wasn't. It was probably at at minimum a three-day trip, more likely a six-day trip. So Jonah has six days of walking just to get down to Joppa to get on this ship. Ever thought about what he's thinking about during that time? I mean, I've got to think that his conscience is working hard on him. No doubt Jonah had the opportunity as he was walking away from God to reconsider. I mean, Jonah knew God. Jonah had preached for God. Jonah's a faithful prophet. No doubt Jonah had the opportunity to reconsider, but he gets to Joppa and he puts down the money on that ticket counter for a boat to a ticket to Tarshish as he continues on with his plan. You know, that must have been an expensive ticket. So why, why do you say that? Well, because it's as far as you could go. I mean, he couldn't have gone any further. This, this isn't like, you know, just a little puddle jumper flight. I mean, this is, he, he's taken the long haul here. And so he pays the ticket for that boat ride. He gets on the boat, and then the boat leaves the harbor. And no doubt, as that boat left the harbor, Jonah is is looking at the decreasing shoreline of Israel, and maybe in his mind, he thinks, I've done it. I've gotten away with this. And you know, I almost even wonder, when Jonah finds that ship that's going to Tarshish, the complete opposite direction, I almost even wonder if Jonah thinks in his mind, well, you know what, maybe God actually wants me to go this way, because here's this boat. What a coincidence. I, I don't know what was going through Jonah's mind. I'm just, I'm just you know, thinking through different scenarios here, but, but maybe Jonah is thinking in his mind that, that he's gotten, got away with this and, and, and that God is maybe even blessing him by providing this ship for him. But you know, I, I can't tell you how many times people have had that false sense of security, right? They think, well, I can walk away from God and nothing will happen. And guess what? At first, many times, nothing does happen. 
And, and then we wrongly contextualize that and, and we say, well, I walked away from God. I'm, I'm no longer in church. I, I don't ever read my Bible. I'm, I'm not trying to obey God and nothing bad is happening to me. So I must be good. I, I must be okay. But, you know, in reality, that ought to be quite alarming. Because the Bible says that those who God loves, he chastens. And when we're without chastisement, the Bible says we're not then the children of God, and that ought to be an alarming thing. But there's something else alarming about this as well. Because for those that, that of us that are Christians, we, we ought to understand that there's a certain invitability that we ought to know when we choose to walk away from God. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, well, when I am consciously disobeying God, I am challenging God to a place of chastisement. I'm not running from God when I think I'm running from God. I'm running to God, but I'm running to an aspect of God that I don't really want to see. I'm running from the mercy of God, and I'm running from the grace of God, but I'm running right into the chastisement and the judgment of God. And that's not a good place to run. One thing I do know is this, you'll never outrun God. We read this morning from Psalm 139 in our scripture reading that David, the psalmist, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David says, God, I, I can't run from you. I can't run from you, God. And Jonah is learning that. He's going to learn it the hard way. To be honest, I think he already knows it, but he hasn't maybe internalized it. Look at verse number four again. It says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Get this, understand this. God isn't trying to kill Jonah here. He's trying to bring Jonah back. And we know that from the next chapter. He's not trying to kill Jonah. He's trying to bring Jonah back. And you know, there is no question about our being allowed, our being permitted to disobey God. We all do it. And we do it easily. And at first, God may allow us to continue on our path downward. We talked about that last week. As you look at that path that's described for Jonah there in those first three verses, it's down, down, down. And at first, God may allow us to continue that downward path. And he may even allow us to pay for our foolish choices. However, as we continue to persist in a disobedience, in the end, God is going to send a tempest because God is going to accomplish his purpose. And with the outcome of this great storm, God is going to accomplish his purpose with Jonah. He's going to accomplish his purpose with the people of Nineveh. He's even going to accomplish his purpose in, in, in an ironic and preparatory way with some unbelieving sailors. Look at verse number five. It says, then the mariners or the sailors were afraid. You know, the reaction of these sailors is interesting, and I think it gives us a picture into the severity of this storm. 
I mean, this was, this was no minor storm. These weren't, these weren't novice sailors. These were men that knew how to sail a ship. They, they were sailors that would have been accustomed to, to the Mediterranean and, and no doubt had gone through plenty of storms in their lifetime. But there was something about this storm that the Bible says that they are at a place where they are scared for their lives. You know, as I read through this event, I can't help but think of another storm that also frightened some experienced men on the Sea of Galilee. You remember the story in the Gospels? These men, they were Christ's disciples. And, and as Christ was with them, and he is, he is asleep in the boat, remember? And, and we read about how for a while the disciples rode, and, and they found themselves in danger of sinking, and, and they're afraid. So what do they do? Well, they run to Jesus, and they cry out. They say, Lord, save us. And Jesus replies in Matthew 8, verses 26 through 27 by saying this. It says, but he, Jesus, said to them, why are you fearful? O you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the seas obey him? You know, the first reaction we see from these sailors, it's one of fear, and it makes sense that they were afraid. I mean, this, this is a fearful thing. But there's a second response from these sailors as well. Do you notice the second response there? Look at back at verse 5. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried unto his God. These mariners didn't just respond in fear. They also responded. They also reacted in faith. You say, whoa, wait a second. How can you say they reacted in faith? You, you do realize this is lowercase g God, right? I do, okay? I do. But they still responded in faith to something. It was a misplaced faith. It, it, it was, it was um, a misappropriated faith, but it was still a faith in something. They were believing in something. They were praying to their small, their lowercase g, God, whether it's Jupiter or Poseidon or Aphrodite or Baal, whatever God they're serving, they're praying to their gods. They're basically saying, oh God, if, if you're out there, if you're out there, save us. You say, well, what, what's this reveal about them? Well, it reveals that they have fear. It reveals they have faith. But why is that significant? Here's why it's significant. Because the, the reactions here of the sailor seem to be in direct contrast to the reactions of Jonah. So what, do you, what do you mean here? Well, get this. The one who should have been afraid wasn't. I mean, if anyone should have been scared, it's Jonah. You say, why? Well, because Jonah knows the power of God. Jonah knows what, what God is capable of doing. Jonah knows that nothing can stop God. Jonah knows that in one moment, God has the power to take the calm seas and to make them rough. And in another minute, he can take the roughest of seas and make them calm with a few simple words of peace, be still. Jonah knows that if there's anyone who should have been afraid, it's the one who knew he was living in sin and running away from God. 
But not only that, not only should Jonah have been the one that was afraid, but Jonah should have been the one that had faith. Jonah should have been the one that had faith. Jonah should have been the one praying. Where is Jonah when these people are scared to death? Where's Jonah as all this is taking place, as, as these sailors are throwing the cargo overboard off the ship? Where's Jonah? Jonah's sleeping. Jonah is sleeping through a storm that was created for him. You know, I wonder sometimes if we miss God's attention getters in our lives. God, God has a unique way sometimes of, of turning up the volume in our lives, and, and sometimes he uses circumstances to do that. You know, the, the same guy, and, and understand what I'm saying here, and I'll, I'll get to this at the end when I, when I highlight a few applicational points. I'm not saying that God uses circumstances alone, but God uses circumstances to draw us back to his word. What was the word that God gave to Jonah? Jonah, go to Nineveh. And God is using these circumstances to try to remind Jonah of what he's supposed to be doing. God gave us his word, that special revelation, but God's also in charge of creation. And sometimes he uses the natural world to get our attention. You say, so is this storm natural or is it supernatural? Well, it's natural. We've all seen storms but it's also supernatural. God is supernaturally using a natural event in the life of Jonah to get his attention, but Jonah's not listening. But you know who is listening? Interestingly enough, the sailors. God is trying to get the attention of Jonah, and Jonah's not seeing it. But the sailors do. The men who didn't know God recognize God's hand in this situation. You know, it's sad, but sometimes it's an unsaved person that sees more clearly what God is trying to do in our lives than we do as believers. It was Pharaoh who confronted Abraham about his lie, saying that uh, Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. Look what the shipmaster says in verse 6. Verse 6, it says, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? This is a derogatory term. The sailor here is expressing disbelief. He's basically saying, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? How, how can you do this? And Jonah's sleeping away. In the Bible, sleeping is often used as a metaphor for, to, for being insensitive to God's leading. Paul urged the Ephesians to awake from their slumber. We are called to be alert and to be vigilant, not to be sleeping. Yet how often are we like Jonah and, 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 and the one whose attention God is trying to get, and yet we're the one sleeping, while even the unsaved shipmaster asks, what are you doing? 
How can you do this? Look back at verse number six. The shipmaster continues. He says, so the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The shipmaster tells Jonah, he says, listen, call upon your God. He's hoping that maybe Jonah's God will hear their prayer and will save them from perishing. I mean, this ship's crew, they've already prayed. They've already called upon their gods and and they didn't receive an answer. And so they're desperate for any help that they can get. But you know what's sad? Sadder than Jonah's nap is that these men want to escape death, and the only one who has the means of escape is sleeping. The one that has the answer to the problem, the one that can offer hope to these sailors in this ship, he's sleeping. And even when they do wake him up, and they ask him to call upon God. Have you ever noticed that chapter one does not give us any suggestion that Jonah actually does pray? There's no indication here that Jonah ever communicates with God. None. All the sailors, they've prayed, they've cried out to their God, but the one that knows the true God, he's even being asked to pray for them. No place do we see that he does that. Look at verse 7. And they, the sailors, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now you say, well, what's this mean? Does this mean that you know, God speaks through these superstitious things? I want to caution you here, okay? Remember that, that these men that cast these lots, these are unsaved men. These are men that do not know the word of God. Right? God God's will is not revealed through, through mystery. And just the roll of a dice or, or a cast of a lot or, or a, a flip of a coin. That, that's not how we should go about seeking and finding the will of God. But that's the only way these men knew. They didn't know God. They didn't know. They didn't have God's word like, like Jonah had. But here God chooses. God chooses to show his will through these lots to these unsaved sailors. And in doing so, he, he, he reveals who the issue is. He does it to accomplish his purpose. To point out your problems, Jonah. The issue is Jonah. You say, it's not, it's not ours to find out God's will through the lottery, but sometimes God does choose to reveal things to us in strange, in strange ways, and that is what God is doing here. God is revealing that Jonah is the one that they're looking for. Jonah's the issue that they have. Imagine being on that ship. They're being tossed to and fro. They're, they're casting off the cargo, feeling like the ship is going to break apart feeling like you're going to die and you've prayed to, to all of your gods and, and they don't seem to be there. And, and now in a last effort to save yourselves, you wonder what in the world is going on? Whose fault is this? So you cast these lots and you're like, oh, it's this guy. Who even is this guy? 
We've never seen him before. And all eyes, all of a sudden, are on Jonah, who moments ago thought he had got away with it. And as soon as Jonah was singled out by this lot, a flurry of questions begin to come upon him. And we can understand that, can't we? I mean, if, the, if you were on that ship, if you were those sailors, you'd want to know who this guy was. We see some of the flavors of this questioning in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, then they said to him, please tell us. For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Those are some pointed questions. And I don't think they're coincidental questions either. Because every single one of those answers to the questions point these sailors to the one true God. Undoubtedly, there were, there were more questions probably than, than these. Probably every, every man had one, but, but at least they were all out, and Jonah has his turn to speak. And notice the irony. Jonah, the one who has run away from God and was in this difficult position because he didn't want to preach to pagans, is now going to preach to pagans. In spite of himself, he is about to do precisely that. It is even possible, get this, it is even possible that there were men of Nineveh among these sailors. In fact, it's it's likely. God was about to show that his purposes and his will will always be accomplished, even if he so wills it, by one who is obstinately disobedient. So Jonah now has to answer these questions, and, and, and he says, well, well, yes, it, it is my fault, and, and what I do for a living, well, well, well I, I represent God, and, and, and okay, yes, I, I'm running from him, and, and, and whose people are you? Well, well, I'm one of God's special chosen people, and, and what's our job as a nation? Well, our job as a nation is to reflect the glory of God and his goodness to to the world and and to show people that he's powerful and and that he ought to be obeyed. Do you see the irony here? I mean, this is absolutely incredible. God has brought Jonah to this point where he has no choice but to share God. What a tough spot this is for Jonah. Jonah. You know what? Repentance begins with a pretty tough spot. When we want to come back to God, so often we want to come back to God and and we want to try to retain our dignity, but that's not usually the way it works. Coming back to God often demands that we see ourselves for who we really are, and it's never a very pretty picture. You see, in these questions, Jonah's conscience has to be being pricked as he is stating clearly who he is. But in his mind, he he says, we are ones that fear God. But is Jonah really fearing God? Is Jonah really displaying the glory of God? Jonah is saying one thing out of his mouth, but he knows his actions are not backing it up. Jonah is being confronted with his sin here through these pagan sailors. Look at verse number nine. Here's Jonah's answer. It says, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew. 
I fear the Lord God, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I'm a Hebrew. I fear God. Well, I say I fear God. You've heard the phrase, your walk talk and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, right? That's true of Jonah here. Jonah's walk didn't back up Jonah's talk, yet we find Jonah here revealing the Lord to these pagan sailors. And watch what Jonah says. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, get this, who made the sea and the dry land. You think back to what David wrote in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? I can go to the end of the earth. I can go to the bottom of the sea. Even there you are. Maybe that is starting to reach into Jonah's heart a little bit. Jonah here has this, has this admission. He's admitting something important. He's saying, you know what? I realized God made the land, so I tried to get away from him by leaving the land and going to the sea, but, but I found out that God made the sea too. And there's no place I can go on this earth where God is not. Every place I go, God already knows that place. And God already knows where, where I'm going. He, he no doubt knows what I'm thinking. Jonah doesn't go that far, but we know that to be true. See, Jonah here is forced to answer these questions and admit his fault. He says, yes, it is my fault. I represent God. I'm running for him. I'm one of God's chosen people. It's our job to reflect his glory and show people that he's powerful and that he should be obeyed. And in, nine, in verse 9, Jonah admits and realizes that God made the sea. God made the dry land. God, Jonah admits no matter where he goes on earth, God is already there. But get this, Jonah admits all of these things, but he's not yet repenting. Understand that. Jonah, Jonah's not repenting here. He's speaking a lot of truth, but there's no repentance yet. Look at verse 10. It says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and, he said, and, and they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. An interesting phrase appears here. Having been told of Jonah's testimony, we, we, we're immediately informed that the sailors are terrified. Now, we were already told that they were afraid earlier in this verse. They were afraid of the storm. But, but why are they more terrified here? What is it that, that has caused these men to be so exceedingly afraid, even more afraid than they were of the storm, it appears? You know what I think the reason is? I think the reason is because these men knew about Jonah's God. I think that they had heard of him. I mean, these men, they've traveled from port to port around the Mediterranean Sea. No doubt they have heard the stories of all the people and all these different gods. You would think that they've probably heard the stories of the Hebrew God and what the Hebrew God has done for his people. 
That he was the God that brought the plagues down on Egypt and and led them out. He was the God that parted the waters of the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to escape the desert. That he's the God that that led the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, protecting them by a cloud that that spread over their encampment. And and he's the one that provided them manna and water to drink. And he's the one that parted the Jordan River to enable them to cross. That, That he leveled the walls of Jericho. And we could go on and on and on and on with all these stories, I think these sailors probably have heard of this God. And they know that he's a God not to be trifled with. This was the God of the Hebrews. They knew that this was not a weak God who was pursuing them for the sake of Jonah. And it's no wonder the men were terrified. And look what they ask Jonah in verse 10. They say, what have you done? What have you done, Jonah? These men, they're they're like, wait a minute. You're telling us that you serve this God. You represent him, but you're running from him? You know, this might be the biggest question in the chapter. And it's a good question. What have you done, Jonah? It's a good question. And isn't it true that sometimes it takes the unbeliever asking this question to the believer? But how embarrassing that must have been for Jonah. One pastor gave an illustration or he told a story that that he had heard or that he was a part of that kind of illustrates this. He said this, he says, when I was a pastor of a church in Los Angeles, said, an unsaved man who had visited the church came to me. I had met him before in a business in downtown Los Angeles and had invited him to come to church. He said to me, is so-and-so a member of your church? I said, yes. In fact, he said, he's an officer in the church. And the man said, well, I've known that man for several years. I've done business with him. I never would have dreamed that he's a Christian. If I were a Christian, I would not do the things that this man does. Kind of embarrassing. Kind of a bad testimony for the name of Christ. That's kind of what the sailors are saying here. How can you do this, Jonah? Like, like we, we've heard about your God. How in the world can you call yourself this and be doing this? The sailors knew better. But it's too bad that Jonah didn't learn as much from the questions the sailors asked him as the sailors did from his testimony that he shares or he would not have answered their questions as he did. The sailors have asked, what have you done? This this was a rebuke. If Jonah had answered properly, it would have led to his repentance. But there was no real answer. There was a full confession. Jonah does confess what he has done. Look at verse 11. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing tempestuous. Jonah confesses what he has done, but there's no repentance. And the sailors say, okay, well, what can we do? The sailors need a big solution here. They know the problem. Their idols do not work. The storm's getting worse by the minute. Who do they ask? They ask the prophet of God. They ask this one that's running away. They ask the one who actually has the answer to the problem that they're in. Say, what is it that's going to get us out of this? We will do anything, Jonah. And what does Jonah say? 
Say, well, Jonah called on them to repent of their sin and to turn to Jehovah and to become his followers, right? Nope. In fact, that would have been awkward. Jonah was in the midst of sin himself, so so this answer would seem to be hardly open to him. You say, well, well, he tried to bluff his way out of the situation. He said, I don't know what to do. God, God hasn't shown me here. Give me an oar. I'll help you row. That, that's what he did, right? Well, no. Jonah couldn't say that either because Jonah knew what the consequences of his indifference would be. He knew he couldn't beat God. So the storm gets worse. And what does Jonah answer? Say, well, maybe Jonah says, all right, God, I'm sorry, I will go to Nineveh. I will do what you have called me to do. Men, just turn the boat around, and God will stop this storm. But Jonah doesn't do that either. Sadly, the state of Jonah's heart is revealed in his answer. Look at verse 12. It says, and he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Jonah tells the sailors how to stop the storm. All they need to do is toss him overboard because he's the guilty one. And in one sense, Jonah, he gets it here. He understands that he is at fault. He understands that he is guilty. He understands his sin. It would be easy to look at this and be like, wow, how selfless of Jonah here, right? I mean, how selfless of him to recognize that these sailors are in danger because of him. And so he's willing to give his life for the life of these sailors. Here's the problem. If we come to that conclusion, we're missing the bigger picture. Because for Jonah's part, his answer was really just revealing a refusal to repent. He could have confessed to God, Lord, I've disobeyed you. I've disobeyed your command. Forgive me. Please spare the lives of these men. Already being in rebellion to God, however, Jonah Jonah does not consider anything that would demonstrate a change of heart here. One commentator writes this. He says, Jonah does not seem to be capable of simple repentance. He could have sought forgiveness during the storm, as the Ninevites actually do later, and committed himself to go to Nineveh. But perhaps he believes that too much water has passed under his ship by this time. Perhaps he's not sure that his repentance would bring forgiveness. He prefers to believe what he wants to believe, in a God who only judges and does not forgive. He would rather die in the sea than suggest to the sailors that they turn around and return him to Joppa to complete Yahweh's call to Nineveh. What's he saying here? I think one of the things that he's pointing out is this. He's saying that one of the reasons maybe Jonah didn't repent is because he didn't want God to be forgiving, because he didn't want God to forgive Nineveh. What a sad state to be in. 
that Jonah is so determined not to give the, the, the gospel, the truth to, to these Ninevites that Jonah doesn't want God to be a forgiving God. And so he refuses to repent himself and to take God's forgiveness. And you know what? Nowhere in this chapter are we told that he repents of his disobedience. You see, defeatism sounds really humble. Well, you know what? I blew it. I'm nobody. God will never use me. And so just toss me into the water and, and, and I'm just trash, I guess. And, and sometimes we're like, oh, he's so humble. No, he's so selfish. God loves him. God has saved him. There was a purpose for his life that God has for him. And God wants him to man up and to stand up and to fess up and to let God use him. Someone has once said that non-Christians never look better than when they are compared with some Christians who are living in disobedience. You know what? These sailors look really good right now compared to Jonah. And they're not believers. Jonah in his disobedience is quite willing that all the inhabitants of Nineveh perish. But get this. Jonah tells these sailors to throw him overboard, but the sailors are not willing to let, Nin or to let Jonah perish. They value Jonah's life more than Jonah values the lives of all these Ninevites. Say, how do you know that? Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. They did their very best to get this ship out of the storm. They rode as hard as they could to bring the ship to land, but they can't do it. And the sea grows fiercer and fiercer against them, and the sailors finally realize that they can't beat the storm. They can't beat the Lord. And so they decide they're going to do what Jonah says. Look at verse 14. It says, Therefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. Get this phrase. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So now who are they praying to? Not their own gods. See, all they got was a busy, well, actually, all they got was no answer from their own gods. Now they're praying true the, to the true God. They know who God is, and they pray to God, and they say, okay, God, we're going to do what he has suggested we do, but Lord, please, please don't hold this against us. We did everything we could to give him opportunity to spare his life. We know, God, you're a merciful God. We know that you're not to be trifled with. These men are showing more faith than Jonah has shown. In fact, I love that last phrase of this verse because they recognize the complete sovereignty of God. They say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. God, you're in control here. We're trusting you. If only Jonah would have gotten there too. See, what God wants these men to do is he wants them to stop calling on their false gods, stop looking for a solution with lots, to stop rowing, and, and God actually wants them to throw Jonah into the sea. And when they do this, the storm stops. 
stops in an instant. And in an instant, the Lord's wrath is gone from being over them. And the moment that they start, stop putting forth effort and instead rely on God's solution, everything is peaceful. As a matter of fact, look at verse 15. It says, so they picked up Jonah. They threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging at once. And the men are left in silent wonder on a now gently rolling deck. And what happens next is the climax of chapter one. You say, wait, there's 17 verses in chapter one. There are, but we're only going through verse 16 because I think verse 17 ties in better with chapter two. But verse 16 is the climax of this. Look at verse 16. It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Wow. Can I put that into New Testament terms for us? These men got saved. That's what this is saying. These men got saved. They put their faith and trust in Jehovah God alone. That is absolutely incredible. That is absolutely amazing. And this is such a great irony. Remember, Jonah's running away from God because he didn't want God to save the heathen Ninevites. But the first great event in the story is the conversion of pagan heathen sailors who were in many respects just as pagan as the Ninevites. But get this. Jonah wasn't even there to see it. See, what do you mean? He's already in the sea. You know what? This carries us further into the lessons of this book about God's sovereignty. What God's going to do, he will do. And God can do what he wants to do, whether it's through the obedience of his children, as he actually does later with Nineveh through Jonah. And in which case, Jonah actually shares, they share in the blessing. Or he can do it through his children's disobedience, as is the case here, but in which case he misses out on the blessing. Either way, God blesses those whom he will bless. But no one, or but, but one case involves happiness for his people while the other involves misery. And this is such an incredible story of God's sovereignty. So as we close this morning, let me give you four quick takeaways. You say, wait, you still got four points? Don't worry, they're short. I'm going to read them and then we're done, okay? Number one is this. God's preferred method, God's preferred method of communication in our lives is his word. His preferred method in our lives is his word. The way that God wants to talk to us, the way that God wants to keep our attention and to get our attention is, is through the study of his word. That, that's why church is so important. That's why Bible study groups are so important. That's why personal Bible study is so important because God's preferred method of communication is his word, but it's not his only method. Sometimes God uses circumstances as the volume button when we don't listen. 
And God turns up the volume. And that's what God is doing here for Jonah. God's word was the same throughout this book. It never changes. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah, go to Nineveh. God's word never changes. But the circumstances change to turn up that volume button to get Jonah's attention. Number two, learn to recognize the ways by which God gets our attention. I'm not suggesting that we ought to discern God's will just by paying attention to the circumstances of our life. But what I'm saying is this, and I pointed this out earlier, God uses circumstances to point us back to his word. So pay attention to what is happening in your life and let those circumstances of your life point you back to the word of God, which is where God reveals the direction for our life. See, what Jonah should have done in chapter 1 is he should have realized that these circumstances were pointing to the fact that he shouldn't be running. They point to the fact that God had given him his word. He should have obeyed. Number three, we can never really run from God. We can never really run from God. It's, it's, it's like a, a little boy playing hide-and-seek from his parents. You ever play hide-and-go-seek with, with a little kid? Ava's not old enough to play hide-and-seek yet, but uh, someday I'm sure she will. Well, she likes to play peekaboo, but someday she will. And no doubt she will hide in front of the TV stand or something and think no one can see her, right? When we all can see her. Because that's what little kids think hide-and-go-seek is, right? Out in the open, no one can find me. Or, or out in the open, or they hide, but they can't stay long enough, and so they come out in the open, right? But listen, playing, running from God is like playing hide-and-go-seek, a, a parent playing hide-and-go-seek, or, or a child playing hide-and-go-seek with his parents. You can never really hide. You can never really run from God. You might think you're running, but you're not running. You're actually running to God, but you're running to an aspect of God that you don't want to experience. You're running towards his chastisement. You're running towards a time of spanking. Don't run away from God. And then number four, finally, don't miss this, repentance. Repentance involves humility and admission but it also implies and involves a willingness to change. Jonah admits his sin. Jonah even maybe shows a little bit of an attempt at a hint of humility. But Jonah was never, willy, was never willing to change his actions. Jonah in chapter one never gets to the point of repentance. In fact, Jonah's suicidal answer kind of betrayed him yet again as he had a misunderstanding of God's loving and gracious design for his life. What do I know? Well, I know this. I know God loves you. I know that God loves you, and I know that he loves you enough to die for you. And I know that he loves you enough that he has an incredible plan for your life, just like he had for the life of Jonah. And why would anybody run from that? See, today can be your day to get it right. Today can be your day not just to admit the wrong, but to turn and to change in repentance. 
and come back to God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. If not, can I encourage you to learn from God's grace to these sailors? You have not yet perished in your godless state because God who made the sea around you and the dry land that you walk on preserves you. Don't remain indifferent to him. Just as these sailors did, approach him on the basis of the perfect sacrifice that has been made for your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Accept his gift of salvation and follow him throughout your days. This story of Jonah, we're only through chapter one. There's three chapters left. But I told you, this, this is a story that has such a powerful message as we understand God's sovereignty, his grace, and his mercy. Let's pray. Father, I, as I study the book of, of Jonah and, and as I study this story, Lord, it, it is a humbling, it's a humbling story. It's a humbling story. 